Welcome to Delta Dispatches. We're discussing Louisiana's coast, its people, wildlife, and jobs, and why restoring it matters. This is Jacques Hebert with Audubon, Louisiana. And this is Simone Malas with Restore Retreat. Welcome back. Two weeks in a row, Jacques. Two good weeks for you. in a row, and I'm here still in the summer. I know. It's good to you know have a regular routine again. I agree with that. I'm, I'm ready to get back into our regular school routine with my kids. So, <laughs> um, So last week, we had a really good show on. Uh, to catch what you missed, don't forget to go to deltadispatches.org. You can listen to our past episodes how many we have we're up to 20 so there's a you know a whole archive there you can learn about all kind of topics can if you you're just listening podcast? is that a thing uh podcast and chill yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> highly recommend it yeah so uh definitely subscribe get all of our latest episodes and catch up on previous episodes yep and we're gaining steam we're getting more and more subscribers every week yeah thanks for the support and for listening and we just want to have another reminder before we get into our really great show that we have planned today we have an action alert out that's right so as we've mentioned in previous episodes um, the u.s army corps of engineers is accepting scoping comments for the mid Barataria sediment diversion that is until september 5th so now is the time to send any questions and feedback um, you have on that sediment diversion to the army corps of engineers uh, so that they can incorporate that into their environmental impact study as they understand how to move this incredibly important pro project forward yeah, we talked about the project so many times on this show. The intent is to reconnect the Mississippi River to the nearby wetlands, deliver sediment, nutrients, fresh water, all of that to build and maintain all those thousands of acres in the Barataria Basin. And the action alert makes it really, really easy to be able to submit your comments, too. So that's really great. Yeah, just go um, to MississippiRiverDelta.org slash take action. Good. So maybe if you need a break from binge listening to us, you could pen a letter on our behalf. Exactly. <laughs> that is a fun Friday night. Great. <laughs> what are we going to talk about today? We have a very cool show where I think we're going to learn more than most people. I'm so excited about today's show. We've got two great experts um, in different fields, but they are both looking at you know, the culture or cultures of Louisiana and preserving them. So um, first up, we have Brian Ostahowski, who is yeah, president job, of the Jack. Louisiana Archaeologic <laughs> Well, too soon. <laughs> Archaeological Society. Um, and, you know, Brian has done a lot to kind of understand and research the different cultures that have lived along Louisiana's coast and helping to document some of the important places, um, you know, that are being affected by the land loss crisis. So can we call Brian just Louisiana Jones instead of Indiana <laughs> Jones? Well, we'll have to ask him. Welcome <laughs> to the show, Brian. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for making me blush with that. Oh, gosh. Well, since Simone brought it up, I have to say, um, since you're an archaeologist, I think it's one of the coolest jobs you can have. Um, I was a huge Indiana Jones uh, fan as a kid. What is your favorite Indiana Jones movie? It's It's got to be the first movie. Um, you know, the the main actress in the movie was actually from my home state, Maryland. So um, I think everyone everyone who was an archaeologist in Maryland really liked that first movie. Raiders of the Lost Ark. Yeah. <laughs> Well, so, you know, um, I know that you uh, you mentioned you grew up uh, in Maryland, but then you got your master's at the University of Wyoming, um, focusing on paleo-Indians and hunter-gatherer societies. So what are some of these main societies that you focused on? Yeah, in Wyoming, uh, some of the sites, some of the great archaeological sites they have there um, are related to the Clovis people, and they're one of the first um, uh, continent-wide cultures that were here in the Americas and studying them sort of studying the colonization of North America um, and uh, but you know down here in Louisiana um, well and I'll talk about that here today but we study I'm studying a few more recent archaeology I, I could say it that way 
yeah, Wyoming's so beautiful and has such a really great history. To come to Louisiana is so really different, <laughs> yeah, right? They absolutely. have they have those pointy things, mount, <laughs> mountains. What are they? Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. So tell us what brought you here to Louisiana. You know, I I think it's sort of uh, probably an ordinary uh, ordinary answer. I, I came down here for a job. I ended up doing some work with FEMA um, as an archaeologist, helping them doing some compliance work. So a lot of the work that FEMA does, all the work that FEMA does, has to make sure that it's not impacting the environment. And there's laws that protect archaeology, just the way, just the same ways in which wetlands and things like that are, are saved well, and protected. Speaking of wetlands, um, you know, we talk about our coastal land loss crisis and how it affects, you know, communities as well as industry, wildlife, habitat, all of those things. But it's also affecting the historical record and um, the history of the cultures that have lived along the coast. Tell us a little bit about that and the threats that coastal land loss presents to um, our history. Sure. Um, you know, I mean, being here in New Orleans, um, you don't have to go far to understand the importance of, of history uh, and, and understand that people, you know, want to know their history and, and, and understand, um, you know, and live in places repeatedly over generations. I mean, New Orleans couldn't be a better example in this country for that. Um, but, you know, in a lot of towns, especially, um, you know, a lot of s smaller communities and things like that, you know, you don't always have a, a, a record in state archives and things like that. And sometimes looking at the archaeology related to people, meaning the, you know, the material culture that they made, whether it was, you know, uh, household items or things that they made, um, is, is the only record that people have. Especially, this couldn't be more true um, for um, prehistoric societies that, that don't, that, that don't have a written record. Um, and also groups that may, may have not been represented in the written record or represented right, rightly. Uh, so this is a really good way to, to understand what's going on and how people, um, how people lived. Uh, one of the best ways that, that you can understand that here is like sort of like the patterns of consumption. What were people eating? What were they doing? What was, what was the economy back then? So I think it really kind of gives you like a snorkel into the past in a way. Um, you know, in the best way you can. I mean, archaeology is, um, you know, it's all about, you know, getting data and, and it's scientifically driven, but we ask anthropological questions at the same time. Yeah, that's a really important point that you made just now is that not always is the written record correct <laughs> and, <laughs> yeah. and that people could have been left out of it and certainly certain communities and certain types of people in those communities. Absolutely. So, so for these places that are threatened by land loss, what do you do to help pr preserve as much of it as possible? Well, right now, I think one of the big efforts is still we're still in the advocacy phase. Um, you know, one of the there's been a lot of tremendous research done um, archaeologists archaeologists have been working professionally and by that I mean not just in universities but like professionally um, doing surveys for Army Corps federal agencies since the late 60s but certainly ramped up here as coastal work goes on you know from the 90s kind of beyond and and so there's been a lot of inventory that's probably the best way to say it. a lot of inventory of what's going on here in the coast and because of the record that's already been established like former archaeologists going out there saying, hey, I saw a site on this Marsh Island and, you know, plotting it and we record this and we have, you know, we have it in GIS. I'm sure you guys work with GIS quite a bit. Uh, and then looking at, you know, just as you're shocked by the record when you see like Noah will put out, this is what the projected land loss looks like. You know, archaeology sites, the great thing about archaeology sites, um, it, well, most of the time they don't move. So it's sort of like this this magnet for what was going on, you know, and, and if and if as archaeologists, when they do move, it's our job to be, you know, professionally trained to understand, well, how did they move? How are they changed? But if we understand they're in the 
the context in which they were deposited, like this is an old trash pit that someone had or a privy or whatever it may be, uh, to understand that and say, okay, well, this is, this is sort of like I said, this is like a direct link to what people were depositing and what people were, what people were doing. Right, and we're about to head into a break, um, and so we want to get into a little bit more sure. of um, you know the work you're doing, and I know there's some interesting examples um, of kind of recent studies. But what are some of these places, just to paint a picture, you know, for people like that are threatened by coastal land loss? Sure. Um, yeah, w- one of the things I, you know, I think we're all very aware of the the shrimping industry and the oyster industry here, you know. But around the turn of the century, so right around 1900, there's something like. 150,000 people living in small, isolated communities, whether they're cannery, they're shrimp drying platforms, cities, all along the coast. These are, you know, Chinese uh, Chinese immigrants, Filipino Im- immigrants. Certainly, in the first half of the 20th century, um, you have Cajun communities as well. And there was this whole, you know, economy that was there. And a lot of these places do not exist today. Or if they do, well, there's the, the Marsh Islands of which they were on, whether it was a platform island or it was like a fishing camp like you'd see, it's now totally under the water. So, um, you know, part of what I'm doing is I'm a terrestrial archaeologist. I look at archaeology on, on the shoreline. So some of these places are, you know, in the process of being destroyed or, or we're, we're tracking them. Um, you know, maybe they're mostly gone. Maybe they're all underwater. And, you know, part of the problem is, you know, some of these artifacts and they kind of get kicked up and they kind of get... I mean, kicked up all over the bays and bayou floors and get kind of spread around and that I, I don't know how else to say it, but like the interpretive potential of these sites totally gets lost when they get destroyed so that's sort of the thing we're trying to get at it's super interesting and you know i'm excited to dig a little bit more into this when we get back from the break you're listening to wgso 990 am and this is delta dispatches National Wildlife Federation gives voices to the wildlife conservation values that are part of our country's heritage. We are charting a new course for wildlife that our children and grandchildren will thank us for. Visit our website, nwf.org Louisiana, to find out more about our work to restore and protect coastal Louisiana for generations to come. National Wildlife Federation, uniting all Americans to ensure wildlife thrive in a rapidly changing world. nwf.org Louisiana. At Audubon, we believe that where birds thrive, people prosper. Nowhere is that more evident than in Louisiana. Integrating science, education, and policy, Audubon, Louisiana's mission is to conserve and restore natural ecosystems, focusing on birds, other wildlife, and their habitats for the benefit of humanity and the Earth's biological diversity. Visit la.audubon.org to learn more and support our mission. la.audubon.org Hi, I'm Don Cheadle. Listen up. I want to talk to you about something important, the Environmental Defense Fund. EDF isn't like some of the other environmental groups. EDF works together with those on both sides of the issue. Despite all the fighting in Washington, EDF has found ways for both parties to support real progress. That has made our air and water cleaner and the products in our homes safer. So not only can our planet prosper, so can our future. Go to edf.org to see how you can help.
Welcome back to Delta Dispatches. I'm Samoma Laws. We're here every Thursday on 990 WGSO and online through our new podcast. Uh, don't forget to check out and like Restore the Mississippi River Delta or Restore Retreat on the Facebook page for more details. We are so lucky to have Brian Ostahowski with us. We had a Thank great you. a great first segment, um, and he is an, archaeologi- an archaeologist and the president of Louisiana's Archaeological Society. Good thing we didn't what? drink in the spirit show before this, right? <laughs> like this is like That's a total a total sobriety test here. Um, so you are the president of Louisiana Archaeological Society. I'm lucky enough to be right yeah. now. Tell yeah. us all about that. That sound, sure. actually sounds really interesting. Yeah, the uh, Louisiana Archaeological Society was founded in 1974 with about 300 members at the time. We're a statewide chapter. We're a nonprofit. Um, and like a lot of archaeological societies, um, we we have an annual meeting. We have local chapters. Uh, so I want to mention everybody. Uh, we're LA Archaeological Society.org. Um, and we have chapters in New Orleans, in Baton Rouge, in Leesville, which is outside Fort Polk. We have a chapter in Shreveport, and we have a chapter in Monroe. So no matter where you are in the state, you could That's probably go. a lot go. of archaeologists, right? Who knew? Yeah, and there are, I'll tell you what, like there, there's always really cool stuff going on all over the state. Um, you know, in our Northwest uh, chapter, um, which is in Shreveport, um, they kind of bop around. But if you go to our website, um, you'll see the chapters, and they all list, um, they, they meet every month, and it's a library or, or wherever it is in their town um but uh the vice president jeff gerard is up there and they're doing really cool archaeology um but monroe couldn't be any cooler because that's where poverty point is and i don't know if you guys heard of that but that's we've heard i've of never it. i've heard of it i've never been i really want to visit well you gotta go uh you gotta go it's it's a unesco world heritage site there's maybe only i don't know maybe I, i'll say uh on the if I'm being really generous, there's maybe 10 in America. Maybe there's less than that. Jacques, do you have a World Heritage bucket list? You can start <laughs> at Poverty Point. I, th- I think Brian's inviting us there. That sounds excellent. <clears throat> I think, you know, that sounds like a great field trip. Yes, so yes. to get up there. We could do a live show. Yeah. Well, there's uh, um, the the station archaeologists up there is all part of the. I mean, we're all we all it's so archaeology is sort of a fraternity, and so we all work. But uh, but yes. And the last thing I would like to mention is that uh, November is Archaeology Month, and look out um, where Louisiana Archaeology Society has a Facebook page, and we're all going to be doing different. Di- um, I don't know if we're going to be doing digs everywhere, but people are kicking off a few different projects, so just make sure you check it out. And and do y'all do something with state libraries? Uh, well, we work with the state uh, with the state culture, recreation, and tourism. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We work hand in hand with them. So yeah, yeah. We, um, we're actually about to launch a master plan project oh, where we try to get the master pl- coastal master plan into all the libraries in Louisiana. There's 363. In case you ever needed to know that, get in out. Case really? Jeopardy. Yes. Wow. Um, but they mentioned to us that I th- I'm almost I'm almost sure it's the archaeological society or, or there's like an archaeological week and that they distribute the information to all the libraries which makes so much sense so we totally <coughs> ripped that off and yeah. did it and used it for the coastal master plan well our yeah. uh, our editor um who does a fine job at the bulletin his name's dennis jones and if there is a louisiana jones it, it is he <laughs> he he is great he does a fine job at it so you were saying i want to talk a little bit about the work you're, you've been sure. doing but before that you were saying that there are events uh coming up in the month of november and can people actually participate in a dig um you know witness uh i think one of the things we're going to be doing is in marksville um which is the site in avoyas parish um 
and uh, stay tuned for it. I think the details are still coming out, but uh, but it, it's it's one of the state parks, and so um, awesome. Well, we'll definitely stay tuned for that. So, Brian, let's talk a little bit about what you are working on these days. Um, I know we were talking before the show, and you mentioned um, some really interesting work around some quarantine sites. Mm-hmm. Is that correct? Yeah, this is one of the projects that I'm, um, you know, I'm lucky enough to know a boat captain here, and uh, and that's a really rare thing uh, because a lot of these sites are not that easy to get to. Um, you know, there's sites you have to go out on a boat for hours to, to even access. So. Um, uh, you know, having access to a good friend of mine, uh, he, he's been a great help and sort of helped the cause here for, for Southeast Louisiana um, archaeology because uh, we're able to to go out and, and do some surveys. So one of the surveys I'm engaged in now is looking at uh, quarantine stations that may have been put outside of the city. Um, yellow fever hit hit New Orleans, um, and one of the times it hit it the worst was, was in the early 1880s, and there's kind of quarantine stations, triage, you know, throughout the city, but... Um, there's also uh, quarantine stations that were set up outside of the city where they would take folks. Um, but mapping these and knowing where they all are, and then some of them were already like post offices and, and, and small villages as well um, out there. But but just getting a full map is really the next thing um, that I'm focused on right now. And it'll, it'll be a very... Um, uh, long-term project so you know getting out there once a month if, if we're lucky that's super interesting and you were mentioning some of these are out kind of uh in the Wrigley's and then that yeah. that section is yes. that where the sites were yeah so one of the sites like so one of the sites that that um that you know we're looking looking at and and the important thing to mention here is is all these sites are are th- are threatened you know if if um if they're not so temporarily damaged or partially damaged, rather not temporarily, if they're partially damaged already, um, you know, a lot of these sites that used to be recorded on land are now in the water, or they're just on the brink of being in the water. So, so one of the towns that I'm looking at right now, um, and you know, we're we're still still in the very preliminary um, part of part of the project, um, but you know, this this town was an oyster cannery. And it was in, um, you know, it was in the Pearl River area. And, um, you know, so some of the oyster cannery villages were sort of like, um, you know, company camps. And uh, they had a lot of uh, immigrants there. And this particularly Polish immigrants that were there. And um, they had a lot of kids that were working there. And like this muckraker journalist around 1905 or 06 came through and he took some pictures of these kids, um, you know, standing on piles of oysters. And I'm sure you've seen this kind of stuff before. Well, some of that... Um, some of those photos were instrumental in the case made for child labor laws. So it had this like national importance, and it's this little town that barely exists now, and and it, and it'll, it will go away unless it's protected. So this is just one example of just this is just one example of what's going on on coast. I think I think what you do is so so cool. It's like unsolved mysteries or something <laughs> like that. You unravel history, and and it's amazing. You don't know where it's going to take you, right? And and so you can't. That in is that very case, true. You knew where it ended up, but you didn't know how it even got there and where you started, right? Child labor laws. But yeah. Then you drill it down to, oh my gosh, you know this is kind of how it starts. It's so fascinating. It makes it makes what we do make uh. seem, a, <laughs> seem a little goofy. But um, so what from what you studied of cultures in in their historical record, what have you learned about people here in Louisiana, and and you know what have about Louisiana over time so you know one of uh, so I think one of the best examples is looking at how Native American groups would live in the Delta Um, they would build they would build mounds and you know these mounds would be places where they would they would have burials as well but it was also places where um, you know in low-lying 
areas like what we now call today Plaquemines Parish, where they made and created dry land where they were able to live. And so I think it's a really um, good example of, uh, I guess now we would use the terms like resiliency or sustainable, uh, maybe resiliency is probably the better word for it. But, you know, these are folks that, you know, had a certain, um, you know, connection to the land. And, and, and I don't think we're divorced from that today. I think it's very much we've learned right now that we are very much, um, you know, tied to the land. Right. Living with nature as opposed to against it is so important. Yes. Um, well, Brian, unfortunately, our time is up. Oh, it's been um, my it pleasure. It goes so quickly. But thank you so much for the work you do and for spending some time with us. One more time, tell our listeners where they can go to learn more about sure. the Louisiana Archaeological Society. Please go to laarchaeologicalsociety.org. And also check us out on our Facebook page, um, which you can find just through searching through Facebook. And we, we put events quite frequently um, on the Louisiana Culture, Recreation, and Tourism website So um, and the, their Facebook page as well. So we all work hand in hand. We would love to have you back again, maybe as would your yellow to. fever research <laughs> continues. And uh, in, in case you're missing, Brian, you, he was in an NPR story, a CBS News story, Christian Science Monitor. So in case you, you've listened to the podcast and need but to hear more about us. But the best is the last. <laughs> this is the best. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, thank you so much for being on with us. We'll be back after the break. You're listening to Delta Dispatches on 990 WGSO. Restore or Retreat is a coastal nonprofit organization working in the heart of the Barataria and Terrebonne basins, from the Mississippi River to the Atchafalaya. We work every day to restore Louisiana's coast community and culture with our mission of implementing long-term and large-scale projects for our irreplaceable region. We'll hope you join us in supporting the solution. Check us out on Twitter, Facebook, and online at www.restoreorretreat.org. Hi, I'm Don Cheadle. Listen up. I want to talk to you about something important, the Environmental Defense Fund. EDF isn't like some of the other environmental groups. EDF works together with those on both sides of the issue. Despite all the fighting in Washington, EDF has found ways for both parties to support real progress. That has made our air and water cleaner and the products in our homes safer. So not only can our planet it prosper, so can our future. Go to edf.org to see how you can help. National Wildlife Federation gives voices to the wildlife conservation values that are part of our country's heritage. We are charting a new course for wildlife that our children and grandchildren will thank us for. Visit our website, nwf.org Louisiana, to find out more about our work to restore and protect coastal Louisiana for generations to come. National Wildlife Federation, uniting all Americans to ensure wildlife thrive in a rapidly changing world. nwf.org Louisiana. At Audubon, we believe that where birds thrive, people prosper. Nowhere is that more evident than in Louisiana. Integrating science, education, and policy, Audubon, Louisiana's mission is to conserve and restore natural ecosystems, focusing on birds, other wildlife, and their habitats for the benefit of humanity and the Earth's biological diversity. Visit la.audubon.org to learn more and support our mission. la.audubon.org.
Welcome back to Delta Dispatches. This is Jacques Hebert with Audubon, Louisiana. We're very excited to have a special guest with us, Dr. Natalie Dyko, Assistant Professor in Tulane's Anthropology Department. Welcome to Delta Dispatches, Natalie. Hi, thanks for having me. So you focus on linguistics, um, and we were just talking to Brian about preserving kind of the archaeology and the historical record of Louisiana, um, and you're kind of working to preserve it in a different form, the spoken language or the languages that have been spoken uh, throughout Louisiana and coastal Louisiana. So Louisiana must be an interesting place to study language. Very, yeah. So tell us, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you even ended up here in Louisiana because you're definitely not from here. I can tell by your language. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, though I've lost some of the, the strongest markers of, <laughs> of my origins and specifically the pronunciation of a boat, though maybe I should bring it back because people in New Orleans are pronouncing it th that way these days. <laughs> so I'll really sound local. Um, but I'm from Vancouver, BC, and I actually came down here for graduate school. I was looking for a place a school there that a school that would be somewhere that I wouldn't hate living for seven years. I wish I had a better story than this, but this is <laughs> um, but I wanted to live somewhere that was interesting and and somewhere that would pay me to go to school. And it all converged on Tulane. And then I realized I said, wait, but there's also French in Louisiana. And I had some vague ideas of what was going on at the time. I knew that there was Creole. I knew that there was other French, and I knew that it was also dying, and that there were efforts to revive it. And that was the sum total. And I I had been to France for a year in the 11th grade and so I spoke French and I was interested literally my plan was I want to go hear what that sounds like and so that was why I came down here because it just seemed like this great place to be and I was right in the end um, the, but, but they, they didn't tell you about the weather though right oh no and I love the weather ah, Are you kidding? everybody says to Vancouver. me but it's cold in Canada I'm, well Vancouver it rains all the time but it's so beautiful though that's it is really <laughs> pretty that is the trade-off it rains all the time but it is very pretty but yeah no I came down here I'm like well yeah it's cold in Canada why do you think I left <laughs> so no I love the weather so you know we talk about Louisiana's coast and the culture and the people and so we we probably probably just let's call a spade a shovel right we have a very interesting language zone is that fair to say i would i yes <laughs> tell us a little bit about that um okay <laughs> um, let's see where to start um what historically currently um all of those yes Yes. Um, I mean, I came down here to study the French, and so I probably know the most about that, and to some degree English. Obviously, historically, there were indigenous languages here prehistorically, right before um, anybody was writing things down that were going here, that were going on here, there were indigenous languages, and there were lots of them spoken here. Um, and through the historic period, you get new indigenous languages coming in, too, and so there are people moving around um, who, are, who are speaking indigenous languages, and then there are people coming in who are speaking European languages, who are speaking African languages, and a lot of the diversity in Louisiana actually gets erased by the focus on French, which is important. I'm not saying it's not. I mean, I came to study it. I think it's important. But you definitely tend to, in this story, sort of forget about especially the indigenous and African languages, but also um, there, were, there were probably something like 50 African languages that came in and were spoken fairly late into um, probably the Spanish period, if not into the American period, too. So for various reasons, and Gwendolyn Midlow Hall writes about that, I don't. So, um, but, but they were here, and then we have these waves of immigration, um, Germans, Irish, Italians. Um, in the 20th century, we get people um, from Latin America, especially Honduras and Vietnam, we get. So we have all these people coming in. There are lots of, of minor languages, too. Greek, for example, there was a Greek community. Um, so there is, I mean, New Orleans in particular was this very polyglot place. Um, but French was dominant, and so 
what we got over time with French anyway is three varieties of French um, developing here. Um, and I get a lot of questions mostly from people out of state who will use the terms Cajun and Creole interchangeably, for example. They'll tell, tell us about Cajun Creole French. That's always my favorite. I'm like, <laughs> well, okay. Um, actually, such a thing probably could exist if I phrase it right. But we have three varieties of French that, that end up, that linguists generally recognize in Louisiana. And so one is a very standard-like variety. Um, and that came in actually fairly late. In the 19th century, you tended to have immigrants who were re reasonably well-off who came to Louisiana, um, Bonapartistes, for example, um, who brought with them this very modern standard-like variety. If you think, if you've ever read Jane Austen, um, the English that's spoken there, it's about the same time distance. And so there are some very minor differences that most people don't even, even notice. So it's that level of difference from modern standard French. Um, and so that comes in in the, in the 19th century, and that's when you end up with newspapers and a whole literary scene and, and so on in Louisiana. But prior to that, you had immigrations of lots and lots of people speaking non-standard French. French is not just this uniform thing. Um, in France, historically, you had a lot of, of dialects that were very similar to each other in many ways. Um, most of the people who, who came early on tended not to be your wealthy Frenchmen. They tended to be um, soldiers who'd ended up with this unfortunate detail um, who decided to stay um, because they could own land, for example, here. And so you end up with lower class people coming in, bringing with them dialects that were, were similar to modern standard French, very similar, but had significant differences as well. And so a lot of them actually came from Paris, um, the early immigrants, but in any case, um, so you have in Louisiana all these early immigrants speaking these dialects of French, and then you have, along with them, um, people speaking African languages. And those people, um, the, Afri the people speaking African languages, are going to basically be forced to learn French. And they are going to create what we call Louisiana Creole, which lexically, if you give me a list of words, I couldn't tell you in all likelihood what it was, with one or two exceptions. Yeah, it's French, but is it Creole? It could be either. Um, but structurally, it can be very different. And just to give you one example, um, the classic example that we use when we, when we ask people, when people tell us, I speak Creole or I speak Cajun, we say, well, how do you say I have $5? And because it's a little complicated beyond that, people tend to label their language after themselves. How, you know, if, if I say I'm Creole, I tend to say my language is Creole. If I say I'm Cajun, I say my language is Cajun French. Um, you can use French actually for any variety. But when people want to specify, they tend to, to label the language after themselves, after their ethnic identity. And so um, when people say that, we sometimes as linguists want to know specifically what kind of variety they speak. So we say, okay, well, how do you say I have five dollars? And if someone says, j'ai cinq piastres, um, j'ai is I have, as it would be in standard French. Cinq is cinq, is five, as, as it would be in standard French. And piastres is an old monetary term that they use for dollars. And so when somebody says something like that, a is the conjugated form of the verb avoir. We say, okay, well, that's, that's what we would call, in linguistics, we tend to call it Louisiana Regional French, which is the third variety, derived from all these non-standard varieties. Um, and if they say mot gain cinq piastres, gain is, um, it's actually derived from the French gagner, which in standard is to win, but in some dialects is to have. And so, and mot is from moi, the tonic pronoun, which you use to stress. In French, you can't stress je, so you use moi, me, I, basically. And so, it's derived from French, but it's been altered. 
um, to some degree. And so not enough that it really prohibits understanding in Louisiana. The, the Creole that's spoken here is actually very close to, to the French that's spoken here and people tend to understand it fairly easily. And I came in, unless somebody's speaking very, very quickly, I tend to understand most of what's being said. So it's, it's similar enough, but <laughs> It's, but yes, the third one is the one that I study, it's and I'll It's so chase. fascinating, and not and you know a, sh a short or quick <laughs> so, answer by any means. I know means. I was like these questions, and no, and um, you know it's so interesting. I mean, I am part. My grandfather's Cajun French. My grandmother was Creole French, but you know neither of them ended up speaking French later in their lives. And so we want right. to talk a little bit about what's happening to the language now, okay. right when we get back from the break. You're listening to Delta Dispatches on WGSO. And we're back. You're listening to Delta Dispatches. This is Jacques Hebert with Audubon, Louisiana. We are excited to have Dr. Natalie Dyko, um, assistant professor um, in Tulane's anthropology department. We're talking about languages on Louisiana's coast. So before the break, Natalie, you were discussing kind of how Louisiana has come to have so many varied languages in its history. Um, but let's talk about what's happened to those langu languages since then, particularly French. So, um, you know, my grandparents both spoke French. You always want to focus on French. You just said that, you know, there's other languages too. <laughs> Jacques, pay attention. Well, you know, my name is Jacques Hebert. But, um, you know, they spoke French as their first language, but then quickly, you know, subsequent generations didn't. So is that a common story um, for people in Louisiana? Very, yeah. And you find um, a really big sort of a tip moment right about World War II. So, and there are, there are multiple reasons for it. Um, and the different varieties are actually in different stages of decline. So you're not going to find very many, if any, speakers of the standard French that came in. We call it plantation society French. Um, Creoles in further decline than what most people call Cajun French, which I just wanted to interject. I almost finished it. But that one's actually, it's, it's, it's a mix of lots of those non-standard dialects, including the Acadian French that came down to it, which is where we get the term Cajun. Um, but in any case, that one is probably the healthiest. And it's, it's kind of looking dire right now. That said, I mean, there's there's a lot of hope too. So most of your speakers are going to be 60 and over. Um, though I've found pockets um, where people do still speak French um, or Creole for that matter. In Brobridge, I found people in their 40s and 50s. I've found people about 40, 50 as well. Down in Terrebonne, Lafouche, um, the occasional younger speaker. But but when you actually get groups of people, they tend to be in their 40s and 50s have been the youngest. I know a few monolingual speakers um, down in Terrebonne Parish. So. They're still out there, and that's and the reason and the fact that they still exist is is what means that there still is hope for the language. Um, what people really need to do, and what's very difficult to do, is just start speaking it with the children all the time. Um, immersion schools are great. There are a lot of immersion schools around the state, especially in New Orleans. We have a number of immersion programs, um, but the schools can't do it by themselves, right? So what you need is the community speaking it again. But this, that community still exists, and so there is hope. And there's a lot of interest. You have young people who are interested. You have Codafil who's doing work as well, bringing in teachers, sending people in Louisiana to be trained, and so on. Um, but you do have native speakers of Louisiana French who are still alive who can speak to, to, to their grandchildren um, in French. Um, you have young people who are, are organizing and sometimes not organizing, people working on their own, people working with groups like the Franco Jeune um, out by Lafayette, who, who very much, there's a lot of willingness. There are a lot of French tables um, around the state that you can join and hang out with people to speak French once a week and so on. So there are definitely opportunities for, for people to get out and speak French. There, there's a lot of willingness, a lot of, of, of work being done to save it. So what I do is really minor. All I do is record people and then 
put their recordings in the library so people can hear them. But it's so interesting to hear you talk about that. We we were recently around Church Point and they said right, okay. the rosary, but the last decade of the rosary, they said it in French, oh, really? which is okay. really cool. And when I grew up, um, we we had one teacher in sixth grade and she made us learn the Angelus and the rosary huh. all in all in French. And it's so funny because when they started to say the rosary, it like just kicked back in, right? Huh. So you do have to have somebody willing to teach, but um, uh, you know, also probably as a sixth grader, right. you know, I, I probably absorbed it maybe um, better than most. And so that's really, really interesting. So um, that's about the extent hmm. of my French experience. I, I took Spanish in high school. And Jacques, you have your own Spanish experience. Yeah, I, uh, Span- I speak Spanish. I don't speak French, sadly. But I, I do want to learn. Um, you know, I think many people in my p- position are, you know, similar have that interest um i also you know was really exposed to what we call the yat accent growing up so close to st bernard <laughs> um i have friends who are not from louisiana they're like why do, why do people you know like speak like they're from brooklyn so can you answer that question why are there so many brooklyn sounding people in louisiana <laughs> um yes and no i can tell you you sound the same because you make the same sounds <laughs> um, you know the th becomes t or duh depending the the becomes duh um r is dropped car becomes ka um which happens in a number of places in in the in the states um but um curl coil though that one's not very curl right exactly that one's less common these days but earned <laughs> That one's different, um, but okay. Um, uh, as for why we sound, people in in New Orleans or and its around, surrounding area sound like New Yorkers, although I've been told not to use the term "yet" lately. People don't seem to like it a lot. So, apologies. <laughs> it's okay. I just want to make sure people know that. Um, but I embrace it as a term of uh, pride. <laughs> some people but, do. Some people like know. it. Some people don't. So, yeah. in any case, um, as for we why they embrace all yats around here, it's fine. <laughs> As for as for why y'all sound like that, um, we don't actually know. It's one of two things. It's either because there are similar immigrant stocks, right? There were a lot of Germans, a lot of Italians, a lot of the same people moving into New York that you get down here, or it's because there was a lot of contact between the two cities. And there are people who there are, there are linguists out there who have studied this and have said, look at the similarity in the structure. It looks just like New York. And the most parsimonious answer is because contact. Um, the other the other side has said, well, but wait, there is there's you know, lack of historical evidence or counter evidence in history and so on. And so there's this debate. It's friendly. Everybody's still friends. Um, so we don't really know. And I've been out to Independence to study their English across the lake, which is very interesting. And I was kind of curious to know if Italian right could be tied to some of these features. And what we found was that independence is independence in the end. It was an interesting place, great in its own right, but it didn't really help to answer that question either. So <laughs> it was. So, yeah. Well, it's super interesting to, you know, just think about language as a, a vehicle for understanding place and particularly Louisiana's coast. Um, so, Natalie, we're almost done. But really quickly, um, I know you have your, a book that's coming out soon. And what resources Hopefully. yeah, would you give to people who are looking to learn more about Louisiana's unique languages and its history? Um, well, a lot of the stuff is really technical. I mean, if you wanted to learn about Isleño Spanish, you, you could spend a lot of time reading very technical stuff. But um, the most accessible stuff is actually um, movies by the Center for New American Media. Um, like, yeah, you write on New Orleans, which is great because it's got a great introduction to the nature of dialects and, you know, why dialects are not bad and what, you know, and so on. And it also provides you with examples of New Orleans English. And they've got um, The Ends of the Earth on Isleño Spanish. Um, there's a really easy book, um, on Louisiana French by Carl Brasso. Um, 
called uh, French Cajun Creole Homa. It's short, it's easy, it's accessible for people who are not linguists. Um, the Dictionary of Louisiana French that came out is good for that. And then um, Shauna Walton and I, Professor at Nichols, are co-editing an upcoming book. It's an edited volume. So we've got people who study indigenous languages. We've got um, people who study English, study French, study um, Spanish, and so on, who have written chapters for us in this book. Um, and we've put it all together. It's going to be called um, Language in Louisiana, Culture and Community. Community and Culture. I've probably got it backwards. It's my own book. But it should be coming out next year. So, And that one has been written specifically to be accessible to lay people as well. So Great. Well, we will definitely um, you know, keep tabs on that and let folks know when it is available. Where, uh, you know, Thank you so much for being on. We really only did you know we didn't really do service to the <laughs> complexity of this issue and it was um, really hard to answer <laughs> a lot to answer in a short amount of time so we'll as we have to say with our favorite guests we'll have to have you back on and talk more um but for now um natalie thank you so much for being on yeah you right i love that and i'm gonna say that for the rest of the day now too <laughs> thank you natalie for being on so jacques as we close out this show just one more reminder about the action alert Sure. So you can still go on our website, MississippiRiverDelta.org slash take action. Um, and, you know, you have until September 5th to give input on um, a key project in the restoration toolkit, Mid-Barataria Sediment Diversion. Um, and next week, what do we have coming up? Another fun show. I think it's going to be really, really fun. So we want to keep it a secret because we got to make sure that everything works out. But I think next week might be our most fun show yet. Yeah. So definitely don't miss it. Tune in. Um, and I want to thank our guests again so much for being on. This has been a really interesting show, and I think we both learned a lot. We hope you did too. Um, thanks again. You're listening to Delta Dispatches on WGSO 990 AM.